Hello, and welcome to the Great War Podcast, an in-depth look at the origins, battles, and consequences of the First World War. Episode 65, In Winter's Grip. Last time, we began our wind-down of 1916 by closing out the Battle of Verdun. This week, we are going to continue where we left off by discussing the final weeks of the Somme. The Great Anglo-French Campaign was coming to an end. Following the Battle of Flair Corselet, Anglo-French forces entered a brief period of inactivity. Five days of relentless combat had left the belligerents exhausted. Rawlinson's men had been in action for seven days, Fayol's for nine. By September 22nd, the Allies were poised to launch the next stage of their attack, the target being the elusive villages of Goudecor, Le Bouffe, and Morval. After a three-day respite, the attack resumed on September 25th, delivering one of the most impressive set-pieces of the campaign. Within 24 hours, Goudicourt, Le Bouffe, and Morval were captured, while the French completed their encirclement of Comble, netting 3,000 German prisoners and huge stocks of shells and medical supplies. The success of the 25th was repeated two days later, when units from the British 18th Division stormed and captured the Teepval Heights. 89 days after the Ulster Division's fatal attempt on July the 1st, the high ground south of the Anka was finally in British hands. It was a cathartic moment for the British, prompting a French historian to remark that the capture of Teepval marked the end of the British Army's apprenticeship. September thus ended on a high note for Anglo-French forces, but if one expected the wave of optimism to carry over to October and November, they would be sorely disappointed. The final two months of the campaign would play out under vastly different conditions. The high heat of summer had now passed, replaced by dropping temperatures and shortening daylight. French weather stations predicted October to be one of the wettest months on record, and for once, the meteorologists were right on the money. Autumn storms swept their way into the valley, bringing black clouds and slashing rain. For 21 out of 31 days, it downpoured, turning roads into impassable quagmires. Mud jammed weapons, clogged wheels, and absorbed the impact of artillery shells. The great war machines had ground to a halt, humbled before nature's fury. In his headquarters at Chantilly, Joff had grown impatient. With the weather starting to turn, he felt the British were not doing enough, and that his own generals were lacking encouragement. In truth, Anglo-French forces were incapable of building off their successes in September, despite the fall of Comble allowing them to establish a new boundary adjacent to the Bapaume Pyrenees Road. Weather was a major factor in this, but so too was the logistical nightmare of sustaining such a large offensive. As the Allies advanced, they marched through their own path of destruction, inheriting all the devastated terrain torn up by their guns. Roads, villages, rail lines, and bridges lay in ruin, making supply and reinforcement especially arduous. As water pooled around their feet, the French sought to break out of the morass and reach the higher ground. On October 7th, Fayol launched an attack on the village of Sey Salazel, a small commune straddling the Bapaume Pyrenees Road. Fought under horrid conditions, including fog, wind, and rain, French forces took heavy losses in the fight, which reduced the village to a featureless shell slope. The infantry attacked with mud up to their thighs, 
and were punished by the galvanized German defenders. As Fayol hammered against Sei Salazel, Haig supported the attack by assaulting the flanking town of Le Transloy. The British took 8,000 casualties for no appreciable gain. Fog and rain had reduced visibility, air support was shoddy, and artillery fire was dreadfully inaccurate. Even Haig's optimism had begun to waver. Dry days were rare, and the mood of the troops was starting to turn. After conferring with his staff, Haig put the brakes on further attacks, narrowing his focus on establishing good positions for winter. The decision to divert from the main attack brought a strong rebuttal from Joff. Writing to Haig in mid-October, Joff warned him of the ramifications of shutting things down too early. Quote, At the moment when the British offensive undertaken on July 1st is giving the marvelous results we have seen, when your numerous armies are abundantly supplied, public opinion would find it hard to understand that this offensive should slow down or stop. End quote. Haig had every right to be incensed. Not only was Joff's letter an insinuation that he was abandoning the offensive as a whole, its arrival coincided with a visit from Sir John French, Haig's predecessor, who had visited Joff's headquarters on the 10th. Haig suspected discord, writing later, quote, How unnecessarily difficult these authorities at home seem to make things for me, struggling to do one's best against the enemy. End quote. By October, the Allied advance was stuck in the mud. But things on the political front took a dramatic turn when Lloyd George visited French Army headquarters. During a luncheon, Lloyd George had asked a number of French officers their opinion on British generalship, wanting to know why the British had suffered such heavy loss as compared to the French. This was a blatant breach of professional etiquette. Haig was understandably furious. Lloyd George stated he was merely seeking a second opinion. Yet Haig felt that if Lloyd George had inquiries, he should not be airing them to the French. Quote, I would not have believed that a British minister could have been so ungentlemanly as to go to a foreigner and put such questions regarding his own subordinates. End quote. This was just the tip of the iceberg for Haig and Lloyd George's relationship. As Gary Sheffield writes, things would only get worse in 1917. Despite the weather and political machinations, Haig was determined to see the offensive to a successful conclusion. He agreed with Rawlinson that 4th Army could not remain where they were. Their left wing was stuck at the bottom of a valley. Drainage was impossible, and the men had spent weeks knee-deep in cold slime. With Sei Salazel now in their possession, the French were looking to push beyond the final ridge and the British could assist this by striking again at Le Transloy, giving them an elevated position for winter quarters. However, Haig came upon some unexpected obstacles. Conditions at the front had taken its toll on British morale. Tempers were short. There was not enough warm food to go around, and to make matters worse, the local water supply was contaminated by arsenic and decomposition. According to Haig's biographer, J.P. Harris, a full-strength battalion was now listed at 350 men, down from the initial 800 in June. Ominous warnings aside, Haig was determined to seize the high ground. Rawlinson concurred, and tapped Lord Cavan's 15th Corps to carry out the attack. But Cavan believed any attack in this sector was doomed to failure. 
the abhorrent weather had prevented his men from building suitable attack positions. Thus, Cavan refused to carry out the assault, detailing his opposition in a letter to Rawlinson. Quote, An attack from my present position, with the troops at my disposal, has practically no chance of success. I assert my readiness to sacrifice the British right rather than jeopardize the French, but it does not appear that a failure would much assist the French, and there is a danger of this attack shaking the confidence of the men and officers and their commanders. No one who has not visited the front trenches can really know the state of exhaustion to which the men are reduced. End quote. That last sentence was undoubtedly a swipe at Rawlinson, and most likely Haig as well, reinforcing the myth of the Chateau General. Rawlinson pressed Cavan to attack, but the corps commander was unmoved, telling Rawlinson he would only attack if Rawlinson saw the front for himself. On November 4th, Rawlinson did just that, and was soon swayed by Cavan's arguments. Rawlinson passed his findings on to Haig, who responded by reducing Cavan's role to supporting bombardments and trench raids. This was hardly a suitable compromise. Le Transloy was a formidable position, and merely poking at it was more than enough to bring unwanted casualties. Despite Cavan's protests, minor operations were launched in the sector, and as predicted gained none of their objectives. When the attack went in on November 5th, British losses numbered 2,000 with little to show for it. Haig does not emerge well from this affair, but given the overall context, it made sense for the British to support the French drive up the ridge. Fortunately for Haig, the next major effort helped remedy his error. The final push of the Somme campaign took place in a sector where it all began. At the north end of the British front, Herbert Goff's reserve army was positioned to make appreciable gains near the Anka. As a side note, Reserve Army was officially designated 5th Army on October 21st, so I'll be referring to it as 5th Army from here on out. Since July 1st, 5th Army's front had not moved much. Although it had to contend with these same miserable conditions as 4th Army, their infrastructure was largely intact. While very muddy and slippery, the ground was still passable, not yet the outer morass found further south. The decision to attack in this sector came from Goff himself, although Haig was more than happy to endorse the plan. To Goff's credit, it was a good plan, with realistic expectations and limited objectives. Attacking with 5th and 1st Corps astride the river, the Battle of the Ankur was a successful, if placid move by Goff. Launched on November 14th, it captured the villages of Boucour, Saint-Pierre-de-Vion, and finally, Beaumont Hamel. Four months after the Newfoundlanders paid the ultimate price, Beaumont Hamel was occupied by British forces. Goff had been careful not to repeat the same mistakes as Hunter Weston. His artillery fired 240,000 heavy rounds, a concentration of firepower which dwarfed that of July 1st. In addition, a second underground mine was detonated near Hawthorne Ridge. 4,000 German prisoners fell into British captivity. A renewed effort on the 18th pushed the advance further, helping to secure a stretch of the ridge before winter. Goff's timing could not have been better. 
On the night of November 18th, Picardy was gripped with frost, and the first snows began to fall. Haig was pleased with the results, and as the Entente's military and political leaders convened for another conference at Chantilly, Haig suspended further attacks. Thus, the Battle of the Somme came to an end. There would be no breakthrough. The campaign drew to a close not in the green fields of northern France, but in a frozen, shell-blasted wasteland, the leading virgin of Albert, still discernible with the naked eye. For the men in the line, visions of wintering in Bapaume gave way to a harsh reality. It was to be another hard winter in the trenches. Trying to assess the Somme is difficult business. It certainly deserves its reputation as one of the most ghastly episodes in modern British history. Four and a half months of terrible suffering on an unimaginable scale. When the campaign ended on November 18th, Allied losses totaled 624,000 men, 204,000 French, and 420,000 British, including 146,000 killed or missing. Add in German figures, and the cost is all the more humbling. While historians debate the actual number, German losses are commonly believed to be no fewer than 429,000 men, of which 164,000 were killed or went missing in action. In other words, the Germans lost more men on the Somme than they did at Verdun, despite the Somme lasting just half the time. Combined, 1,053,000 men became casualties. The campaign lasted 21 weeks, from July 1st to November 18th. Ever since, historians have asked what the Somme contributed to the Allied cause. By November 18th, the British had won a strip of territory 64 kilometers in length, but had achieved a maximum penetration of just 9 kilometers. Given the limited gains and loss of life, it has become fashionable to dismiss it as a total farce, a battle fought only to satisfy the bloodlust of warmongering generals and industrialists. Without having to retread everything we've spent 16 episodes talking about, no fair judgment of the Somme can be done without understanding its place in the overall strategic picture. Lines on the map and casualty figures cannot tell the full story. I'll begin by saying that the Somme did achieve notable results. It showed that Britain was no longer fighting with ships and cash, but was now doing so with men and guns. Hundreds of thousands of them. The Entente had regained the initiative. Verdun had been saved, and the German army had been dealt a damaging blow. The effect that the Somme had on the German army cannot be overstated. Although it did not result in its surrender, German forces were left in a bad state. Crown Prince Ruprecht reported that 2nd and South armies were outnumbered 2 to 1, and they faced one and a half times as much enemy artillery. By November, German infantry were left hanging by a thread. The relentless Allied barrage had reduced them to a pathetic state. The confidence of July 1st had long evaporated. Lying in mud holes, all they could do was hold out until Old Man Winter came to their rescue. In his memoirs, Ludendorff recalled the chaos of trying to contain the Allied advance. Quote, 
Divisions and other formations had to be thrown in on the Somme front in quicker succession and had to stay in the line longer. The time for recuperation and training on quiet sectors became shorter and shorter. The troops were getting exhausted. Everything was cut as fine as possible. End quote. German command faced a dire situation at the end of 1916, forcing them into doing something not yet seen a full-scale withdrawal on the Western Front. The Germans cut their losses. That September, construction began on a new fortified position in the rear. This line of fortifications stretched from Arras all the way to Reims. Dubbed the Hindenburg Line, it allowed the Germans to shorten their front and economize manpower. Old positions at Gumcourt, Bapalm, and Roy were evacuated eliminating the great salient between the Somme and Was rivers. The decision to withdraw to the Hindenburg Line was a direct consequence of the Somme fighting. It was a race against the clock, as Ludendorff feared a resumption of the fighting would doom Germany's chances. Quote, the enemy's great superiority in men and material would be even more painfully felt in 1917 than 1916 we had to face the danger that Somme fighting would break out at various points on our fronts, and that even our troops would not be able to withstand such attacks indefinitely, especially if the enemy gave us no time for rest and for the accumulation of material. End quote. Although not yet beaten, the German army had been fought to a standstill and was utterly worn out. In the words of one captain, the Somme was the muddy grave of the German army. This is how the Battle of the Somme should be remembered, not as a futile bloodbath, but as a necessary step in the attritional process. We can only speculate on how 1916 would have played out if the Somme never took place. Most historians agree that although it did not satisfy Haig's lofty ambitions, it was a battle which had to be fought, if the Entente hoped to survive into 1917. The Somme also had ramifications beyond the battlefield. But that will have to wait until next week, because I think we've covered enough material already. Next episode, then, will serve as a wrap-up for 1916, and what to expect as the war entered its third year. That's it for this week. As always, be sure to check out the website at thegreatwarpodcast.podbean.com there you can find a list of sources and contact information if you wish to get in touch with me. Listener feedback is greatly appreciated, so if you have any questions or comments, you can follow the show on Twitter, at Great War Podcast, or you can email me directly, thegreatwarpodcast at outlook.com. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to leave us a review on iTunes. This is a great way to help grow the show, as the more feedback we have, the higher we'll place in the standings. This will ensure I never stray too far from my laptop and keep working on new episodes. This has been episode 65 of the Great War Podcast. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you again shortly.